Hey, future men. I'm Anne. And I'm Josh V. And so in the last episode, we interviewed a clinical researcher about technology called EPR technologies, but we thought a lot of our questions were left unanswered due to time constraints. So in this episode, we did more research about the background behind EPR technologies and just more about how medical research works. And so today we're going to answer all those questions that you have in the last episode. Before we start, we wanted to talk about our lives. So yep. <laughs> okay. The highlight of my week were two things. First, um, I planned a surprise birthday party for my friends, and it was so funny. We we're trying to be so sneaky when they didn't even care. Like, genuinely, who was like looking outside their house waiting to see if a car pulls up? Like no one. But we were like so determined. We parked ten feet away. Or not ten? Okay, ten feet. That's not correct. Parks like half a mile away from the house. <laughs> And then we had two cars, so we parked in completely opposite directions of the houses. And we were so stupid because we had to meet back up together and go to their house. But then we parked in opposite sides. Me and my friends who went in my car had to run in like below freezing weather with our Wendy's chicken nuggets and all our birthday surprises in our hand. And we were just like sprinting to the other car. Finally, we surprised them and it was really good. We had a good time. At the end of the day, we were like having a snowball fight at 9 p.m. And one guy literally threw a snowball straight in my face. And like, bro, like sometimes I forget how cold snow is because my mascara literally like started running because it was like so much snow on my face. <laughs> I couldn't even feel my entire body after that. But it was really fun. Today, like, I don't know if we want to go that in detail, but taking care of some kids. One of them kept calling me their mom and then one of them kept licking me. So it was just- Mom and licking- Girl, we were just having a conversation about this, <laughs> but these are the people that are going to be treating us. Like there's like the whole like TikTok thing. These are going to be the people that are our future medics. <laughs> yeah, so- We're the future medics for now, but they are going to be the new medics on the mic that are going to be treating us. Yeah, let's just hope they don't lick their patients. Yeah. Joshi told me about Skibbity Toilet today and I searched it up and actually got scared for my life. Like, what is that? <laughs> I know there's no way they're like, watching that and not scared out of their minds. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> okay, so for me, I guess the biggest thing that has been going on is we've had five days of no school because of snow. Basically, like, a whole nother break, a whole week off. Plus, yeah, this like, is like... our winter break part two. It was actually so Yeah, sad. what? Because, okay, because they skimmed out on our winter break this year, so this is redemption for that. This is what they get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing... Well, okay, so today I had my Harvard interview, but I heard... I heard interviews aren't a big part of your application, so hopefully... Yeah, that's actually true. I think it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Hopefully. Okay. I hope you guys got to know a little more about us through um interesting experiences. Yeah. And okay. if you guys are in the Virginia area and you guys experience your days off too. Woo! <laughs> okay, but before we start and we get into like the actual questions and like the research aspect of everything um just make sure you follow us on instagram which is at medics on the mic there might be a podcast at the end of it i kind of forgot but <laughs> it's either at medics on the mic or at medics on the mic podcast and i'll link it in our bio um <laughs> and then also subscribe to our podcast on all platforms which are spotify apple Podcasts, amazon music and google Podcasts. oh my god 
but other than that, I'm going to give it over to Anne so she can talk about EPR technologies and all of the background. You guys heard as much as we did in the last interview, but I'm just going to briefly go over what he was kind of talking about with EPR technologies. And if you haven't watched our last episode, I highly encourage you to watch that because like, obviously it's like the professional and the guy who's in charge talking about it there. So like, I feel like you guys will get a lot more insight if you watch that first quote their like mission statement from their website. Our technology uses AI to induce a state of suspended animation in trauma patients after CPR attempts have failed. This allows the body to be preserved for up to three hours, giving medical teams more time to transport the patient to a trauma center and perform much needed emergency surgical repairs. The patient is then resuscitated and placed into the ICU for recovery. So we basically had a lot of questions with this. Our main thing was, how do you just free someone? Like, how does that really work? And we couldn't really ask, how is that feasible? And we also kind of want to know, biologically, how does freezing someone just help them get care better? How does that stop everything, you know? Obviously, we think, like, when freezing, we stop things. But do cells really work like that? Like, when you just get cold, everything just stops working for a period of time? It can't be that simple. So we did a little research into that. And yeah, as we thought, it really isn't that simple. When they talk about being put into suspended animation, essentially what they're doing, what what Dr. Yaffe was talking about in the last episode was a thing called controlled hypothermia. And I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. Basically, you're inducing hypothermia or like like really cold temperatures onto a patient. Commonly, like this is used for strokes and cardiac arrest. But in their case, they're trying to use it to just increase the window for time where doctors can perform surgery or like any type of care onto the patient when they're being rushed to the ER. And there's a lot of benefits of controlled hypothermia. And it's all kind of centered around the fact that hypothermia decreases your metabolic activities, like usually are talking about like cellular respiration or stuff like that. And so the reason why metabolic rate is decreased is because first, if you think about enzymes, enzymes have like an optimal temperature right so when you're putting your body at really cold temperatures obviously enzymes are not going to function at their best and also if you think about collision theory which is when faster your enzyme and substrates are going the more likely they are to collide into each other and the more reactions are going to take place and higher temperatures make things go faster and so lower temperatures there's going to be less collisions and then less reactions and then like obviously less metabolism um, another thing is the fact that the cellular oh, membrane. Wait, I have be- a really quick question. Mm-hmm. Wait, so I thought when it's not at the optimal temperature, enzymes don't they denature, or is that only yeah. at high temperatures? No, they can denature at low temperatures too. It's pretty cold, but I don't think it's to the point of denaturation. If you look at the curve for temperature, sometimes in some of the lower temperatures, it's just very low, not to the point yeah. where it just stops functioning. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. So then when. When the body is in suspended animation, mm-hmm. is it like it completely stops or is it still going but at a really slow rate? It's still going, but just at a really slow rate. Okay. Other than enzymes, there's also the fact that our cellular membrane becomes less permeable. And oh my god, quiz time. Josh, do you remember what in our cellular membrane tries to keep it more permeable when it's too hot or too cold? Oh my god, I remember cholesterol. Great job, <laughs> If you haven't taken AP, no, if you took AP Bio and you didn't answer that, study harder because that's on your AP Bio test, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so cholesterol is supposed to help, but like, I mean, at the point where you're literally inducing hypothermia, your cellular membrane is going to be so compact that it's just not going to allow as much things either way. Um, So that's obviously less materials aren't able to get in and out, less reactions are going to occur. There's also this thing called oxygen dissociation curve. And 
you guys know what hemoglobin is, right? That's like the protein in red blood cells that are responsible for carrying the oxygen. At lower temperatures, hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen. So basically, it's going to bind tighter to the oxygen, and that means that less of the oxygen is going to be released to tissues. So if other cells have less access, then they can't have metabolism because producing ATP requires oxygen. And if the hemoglobin is going to like just keep all the oxygen to itself, then it doesn't allow those cells to make ATP. Oh, okay. Wait, so hypothermia kind of like stops it from carrying the oxygen out? Yeah, is oxygen it? is more bonded to the hemoglobin oh, okay. when it's lower temperatures. So it won't go to tissues and like allow metabolism. Yeah. And then there's also, this is kind of in the context of like brain neurotransmitter release also decreases because there's going to be less neural impulses happening at lower temperatures. But I also kind of thought of this in like a hormone context because um, cellular processes are triggered when they find a hormone that binds onto the receptor and that triggers some sort of response, right? So if, if you have less neurotransmitter signaling things, then also your metabolism is going to decrease in that aspect because there's less reactions taking place. We're like adapted to conserve energy at lower temperatures because our body needs more heat and everything, you know? So those are kind of like the um, reasons why hypothermia decreases metabolism. The applications of that is what's important. So one big thing that decreased metabolism protects against is something called I think I'm saying this right, ischemic injury. That's basically what happens when blood supply to tissue is cut off. So that's like, obviously with a lot of these cases, whether it's like cardiac arrest or just someone having blood loss, you're not going to have your tissues accessing blood. And that's a big problem. But if you have less metabolism, you're not going to need as much oxygen, right? Like because of all the things we just went over. So the repercussions of not having blood supply isn't that bad because usually our cells need a lot of oxygen, but hypothermia decreases our need for oxygen in general. So it's not going to have as bad of repercussions or as much injury. Wait, I have a question. If hypothermia decreases your metabolism and stuff like that, how do people die because of hypothermia? Our body can adapt to the lower temperatures and stuff. How does that work? Yeah, so controlled hypothermia is only to a certain extent of lowering temperatures to a point where our cells and enzymes and everything can survive, but they're just greatly reduced. The type of hypothermia that makes you die is probably at like way colder temperatures for a way longer time. Preservation of brain tissue is another benefit of hypothermia, especially because brain tissue is really vulnerable after cardiac arrest. So that's a really important aspect if you're looking to use controlled hypothermia to treat cardiac arrest. Another benefit is reduction of exotoxicity, and that's basically a term that refers to excitatory neurotransmitters causing neural damage. So at lower temperatures, that's going to be reduced, so less neural damage. There's also neuroprotection, which is similar. This is referring to just like the fact that our brain has less metabolic demand, and so less oxygen and ATP is going to be used, and that protects our brain. Basically, hypothermia can protect against blood supply when we have blood loss it's going to protect against the repercussions of that it also protects a lot of things going on in our brain looking at the broader context of things and especially related to epr technology it increases the therapeutic window because if patients can survive longer without blood flow because of that decreased metabolism it allows doctors more time to um, perform procedures allows more time for transportation before they can do that yeah makes sense so next, we're going to move on to how exactly you can induce this controlled hypothermia. This is also another thing I was really confused about. 
In between, I think he mentioned that you can have saline injection, but I was still like, how are we injecting saline into our body and then our pools? Like I was really confused. So I was researching into it. And basically there's two types of ways to induce this type of hypothermia. There's surface cooling and endovascular cooling. And I'm going to go through the pros and cons of both. For sober surface, the only pro is that it's cheaper and, you know, having a blanket or any type of cooling thing physically onto your skin. And obviously that's cheaper because like you don't have to have all the technology to like inject saline into your blood vessels. And stuff. Yes. Okay, now let's hear the plethora of downsides to this. So first of all, it's slower. It's going to take hours for the body to cool down. It also requires sedatives or paralytics below when you're going below 35 Celsius, which obviously when you're in... Wait, what are um, paralytics? So I'm going to get into this a little more later as well. But um, paralytics paralyze your muscle. And the reason that's important is because when you get cold, you know how our body's natural response is to induce shivering? Yeah. Yeah. There's two big things that our body does against... Actually, I'll just talk about this. So there's two big things that our body does against hypothermia. First, it's going to undergo cutaneous vasoconstriction. And for context, anytime you guys see the word cutaneous, know that it's related to skin. So it's talking about the blood vessels relating to the skin. So these blood vessels are going to constrict because it wants to reduce heat loss from the skin. That's one thing that it's going to do. It's going to constrict the blood vessels so less heat is lost. The second thing it's going to do is shivering, where it literally causes our muscles to shiver to generate heat. So that's the thing that they're trying to block because it's going to cause patients a lot of discomfort when freezing cold temperatures and they're just constantly shivering, right? To treat this, they're going to have sedatives or paralytics. Well, one example is a neuromuscular blocking agent that just numbs our muscles so that we don't have that reaction and the patients aren't discomforted. Oh, oh my God, homeostasis. Yep. yep. That's healthy to like numb your muscles, but like, I mean, the patient might die. So I guess it's okay. <laughs> Also, wait, I had a really quick question. So if you have like the surface hypothermia thing, the paralytics, did the patients have to take paralytics to stop? Okay. I don't think it's a life or death thing. It's just patients are going to have a lot of discomfort when they're getting cold. And so that just kind of helps them not to have a physical reaction. Yeah. So I was talking about this earlier. Um, Our body undergoes vasoconstriction when we get colder. And the problem with vasoconstriction is our body has less control over temperature because our blood vessels are so constricted. Our blood vessels naturally help us establish a temperature gradient. And when it's constricted that much, it doesn't really allow that temperature gradient to happen. And so when you have a lack of temperature control, the problem with this is after we keep our patients cold for our patients, the patients, sorry, <laughs> cold for a while, um, we need to rewarm the bodies. And That's the problem because when you're taking them from hypothermia level temperatures to our body temperature, that's a big shift. Okay, I was just talking about this earlier, but um, because of vasoconstriction that happens due to surface cooling, vasoconstriction causes a loss of temperature control because the blood vessels are constricted and usually these blood vessels are responsible for creating a temperature gradient, but when it's constricted, it can't really create that temperature gradient properly. And so... This is a problem because after the patients are cooled for a while, they need to be rewarmed and this needs to happen gradually, but it can't really happen gradually when vasoconstriction causes this loss of control. And so there's like a lot of repercussions to this. Um, One study was highlighting like the really bad repercussions of this. For example, rebound cerebral edema, which edema means excess fluid in tissue, um, elevations in intracranial pressure and death. So, super chill. (laughs) (laughs) 
And for surface cooling, there's like certain types. So there's head cooling, which has easier implementations, but it takes longer to rewarm the patient. But then if you add neck cooling on top of that, it can shorten the time. So there's like a lot of different ways you can do surface cooling. And her head cooling usually refers to when you're trying to get the benefits of like the neuropreservation and stuff. But in terms of EPR technologies, it's more like blood loss related. So we wouldn't really use head cooling for EPR technologies. And then for the problem around temperature control, one solution that's been offered is to have energy transferring skin pads. Like I think I can assume what that means through the definition, but I mean, I'm just going to leave it at that. But um, EPR technologies does not use surface cooling anyway. Um, what they use is much fancier. It's endovascular cooling, and this is the more expensive option, but it also allows for much more control. And um, I don't think you have to use the muscle, like numbing things and everything like that with endovascular. So this involves, I'm going to use a lot of big words here, but I'm going to break it down. This uses catheters with anti-thrombotic coatings. What the heck? <laughs> so let me break some of these words down that like are relevant. Antithrombotic means like thrombosis is like the word that they're talking about. And thrombosis is the process of blood clotting. So basically you're trying to prevent blood clotting. And that's like what this device is usually for. But in terms of EPR technologies and like trying to induce hypothermia, the catheters are attached to blood vessels and then a cooling solution is induced into the blood vessels. And I was thinking, I was like, how is it okay to just like induce like a random solution in here but if you think about this like saline is literally just NaCl and then it just once it goes into the blood it just breaks apart into Na plus and Cl you know so it's just like it's it doesn't have a big impact especially because there's two reasons why saline is like really commonly used I I think you guys like anyone who like is familiar with medicine knows that like saline is always like like on the IV right yeah, it's used in the IV. It's kind of just like this regulating thing, but like nobody knows why it's always just used for things. Um, there's two big reasons. First, it's because it's isotonic to the blood. So there's like the same level of like solute um, in both. So that's going to prevent any like cell damage of like either bursting or like shriveling up of the cells when it's introduced. And then another thing is that it has electrolyte balance. So the blood, the, uh, the electrolyte, like levels of the blood and the electrolyte levels of saline are the same. So when it gets introduced into blood vessels, it's going to allow it to maintain the same physiological processes. So basically like saline and blood vessels are just compatible together because they're very similar. So that's why um, like in medicine, they use it. For example, like Joshua was talking about, they use it in IVs to introduce other fluids or they can use it for rehydration. So yeah, they're going to introduce that um, solution saline and that saline is going to be at a really cold temperature so that saline is going to when it contacts the blood it's going to absorb all the heat from the blood and that's going to reduce the temperature okay yeah. wait so the saline is it like at like it's just that room temperature and they just no. inject cold like that's what makes it everything cold oh oh okay so it's cold and then it's like it's absorbing the heat from the blood vessels so then it's like the blood vessels are are getting colder yeah okay yeah. Yeah. And that makes your whole body cold. Yeah. So yeah. And then um, when you rewarm, like the process of rewarming, like I said, like you don't just wait for the saline to flush out and then the blood just naturally increases in temperature again. You have to introduce higher temperatures of saline and make that process gradual. So even the process of rewarming is like really tricky. 
and there's like a few problems that could happen during this stage because obviously when you think about it like shifting really cold to really hot like quickly or like without like doing that properly it can like cause the body to like undergo shifts for example like obviously vasodilation will happen because um like our blood vessels have been constricted for so long because it's been cold but now the blood vessels are going to be widening once it gets warmer and that sudden widening can drop the blood pressure and then increase like a lot of different cardiovascular demands and then when our cardiovascular system is all of a sudden like needing to do so much it's going to cause like dizziness and other like small problems there can also be fluid shifts um because cold to hot is going to like trigger fluid loss and dehydration because obviously when our body is like accustomed to like a colder temperature and then it starts increasing we're going to like sweat out right and then if we don't have proper hydration like that's going to be a big problem and then there's also capillary permeability so that kind of goes with fluids because when our capillaries change their permeability when it gets warmer that's gonna change how much fluids can enter in and out so basically the biggest thing is like a lot of things are going to change in permeability and that's going to like influence where fluids are going and then when fluids are going in different places too fast that's going to influence the cardiovascular system so yeah it's important to introduce rewarming gradually because there's like a lot of potential problems that can happen if you don't. Um, and then I already talked about body mechanisms against hypothermia. So in general, problems with hypothermia and like this whole process that they're introducing into patients, one, there's infection risk because obviously when our body is at a lower uh, metabolic rate, it's not gonna um, have the energy to like have a proper immune system or anything. So that's one problem. There's also coagulopathy or problems with blood clotting. And we kind of talked about that earlier because um, like literally the process that we're using to cool them is anti-thrombotic coatings, which means we're preventing blood clotting. So that's a problem because that's like, we're blocking like our natural body processes because blood clotting is needed in some situations, you know? And then there's a Wait, lot- Wait, do you know like what situations it would be needed in? I think like, okay, the most immediate thing I can think of is like, for example, if you get a cut, blood clotting is the only thing that can prevent blood from stopping. Otherwise, your blood oh. will keep gushing out forever. So, oh, yeah, that's like um, with iron deficiency, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's also obviously cardiovascular problems. We kind of mentioned that earlier. There's one thing called bradycardia. Um, which bradycardia. Means, <laughs> I don't think that's how you say it. <laughs> I don't know. Basically, like, <laughs> slow heart rate. Um, and then there's also arrhythmias. Oh, arrhythmias? Yeah. Yes. Abnormal heart rhythms. And this can especially happen during the rewarming phase if it's not introduced properly. And then um, there can also be lactic acid accumulation. Me and Joshi were just like having a whole like cellular <laughs> respiration moment when we were thinking about this. But um, for those of you who have like are thorough with biology, you know that, um, or actually I'll introduce it in, if you're, even if you're not familiar. So basically like when we undergo cellular respiration, there's like two parts, there's glycolysis. And then after glycolysis, it moves into this whole other process where there's an electron transport chain. And in order for ATP or energy to pr be produced, we need oxygen at the end of that electron transport chain. Otherwise, the electron transport chain can't happen. 
And the whole thing with like hypothermia is that we don't need as much oxygen and we're not going to have as much metabolism or energy production happening. So that's going to decrease our need for like the electron transport chain part of cellular respiration, but our body still needs to make energy regardless, right? Like to keep us living. So um, our body will probably like undergo glycolysis. And then there's this process called fermentation where um, instead of moving on to the second phase, it's going to recycle the things needed for glycolysis to happen again. So it's just going to keep cycling glycolysis over and over. But in order for glycolysis to keep cycling over and over, a byproduct is made and that's lactic acid. And when that just keeps happening over and over again, obviously like you're going to accumulate lactic acid. So yeah, I think um, like overall, like EPR technologies and their like vision is a really impressive idea and like there are some risks to it that need to be addressed I think it's mostly just like there there needs to be like a lot of regulation with procedures like with rewarming because like when I'm looking into these studies it's really vague like how exactly they're planning on doing rewarming because they just say that they're introducing saline at like higher and higher temperatures or like even during the cooling like there's just I feel like there's just not a lot of information about about like the best procedure to have and I think once that's solidified and like these risks are minimized, especially like cardiovascular risk, because that's really serious, right? Like, there's no way we're treating like cardiac arrest with hypothermia and then like having cardiac, <laughs> like, you know, risk. <laughs> yeah, those are my overall thoughts on it. But I hope that helps you guys understand like the biological processes behind like how this like idea works. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to hand it over to Joshri to talk about um how you can get into medical research if you're interested like Dr. Yaffe did um okay so medical research is a whole like big little field it's not just like it's not just what Dr. Yaffe is doing with EPR technologies there's like a lot of different types of ways that you can like a lot of different types of medical research and um when I was researching I found three main types um and they're all like connected together so the first type is called basic medical research and um, basic medical research is testing things that advance our preclinical understanding. So basically what that means is that um, you have like a hypothesis on something that could affect your body and you're testing it. So maybe like um, you have like a new drug or maybe like a new, a new food item or, or maybe like yeah, like a new food item or something, and you want to see how it affects your body. And um, basic research is is mostly like seeing and and kind of investigating the effects that different things have on the body. So most lab work, I guess, is this type of research. And in the case of EPR technologies, and I'm not sure if this is actually a true part of their process. Like I kind of just um, thought of it. Like like this was this might have been something that they were thinking about. But it's basically just saying that like any past research that has showed that when you freeze the body or when you um, like when you induce hyperthermia into a patient's body, um, people's like metabolism has slowed down and and basically just all the research um, preliminary research that Anne was Anne was telling us that all those clinical trials that prove those, that research would all be um, 
the basic research mm -hmm. part of EPR technologies. So mm -hmm. it wasn't really anything that Dr. Yaffe um, and his like colleagues and team did, but like all of the like preliminary research that they used to come up with their with their technology. So I guess because uh, I remember that Dr. Yaffe said he was like working with the guy who initially like had this idea and tried it clinically. So like that guy would be the one who was like doing all this preliminary research. Mm, okay, wait, I don't know if it's that guy either, because, um, okay, because that's what I thought at first, when I was first looking at it, it, it looked, it seemed like, okay, like, he had the idea of the EPR technologies, mm -hmm. and his entire thing was, like, was, like, kind of, like, creating that technology and testing it out on, like, on things, right, but mm -hmm. um, basic research is kind of, um, basic research is working to to understand how different things affect the body. So I think I think when he had the EPR technologies, all of this research was already out there that of um, like hypothermia reduces your metabolic rate, right? Oh, so like he just kind of, so that guy, I mean, that guy didn't create EPR technologies, but I see what you're saying. Like he basically took that idea of basic research and like wanted to make an application to it more like. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Um, okay, and so next is clinical research, and that's when, um, so now, like, after, after, like, this basic research is done, you know how different factors affect the body, so now you can use that to create new treatments and diagnostics, diagnosis, and test it on your patients, right? So this is basically what EPR technology okay. is. Okay. So um, in the case of EPR technologies, um, Dr. Yaffe is using all of that past research to create to create like a treatment and like a whole new diagnostic tool or not di sorry not diagnostic like a whole like treatment and method of saving these trauma patients um and so that would be clinical research that whole process of making this using that past research to make a technology and then also um testing it out on patients like they're doing now that would all be like clinical research Okay. So the basic research stuff, you wouldn't actually test on a patient. Like you're just observing like, okay. In, oh yeah. Okay. So in vitro basically refers to when you're doing research, like in a culture, like you're not actually doing it on like in a body. Like, okay. It was like, like, it's like what we do in AOS. Like we just work with like cell cultures or bacteria things, but then in vivo is when you're doing it like in an actual body with all the like external factors influencing it. Yeah. So would there be any case in basic research where you would do it on a body or no? Like maybe like with rats, can you do it as basic research or would that still be like? I think that would be basic research. So that wouldn't, okay. Okay. Um, okay. So then just a quick overview of clinical versus basic. Um, basic is the research that works to understand how different things affect the body. So like, how does this drug how could this drug potentially affect the body or how could this new genetic modification affect the body? And then using that understanding gained from basic research, um, clinical researchers will take this and then develop new treatments and diagnosis that you can actually apply in a clinical setting. Mm, okay. um, and then the last type of medical research is called epide epidemiological research. And it's this type of research is focused on like specific populations so it'll this type of research like 
um, uses trends and like, I think large data sets and just large samples to test the trends of different diseases and treatments within a group of people. So- um, Like global health type thing? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it's not just global health, it could be like anything. Cause, okay, cause um, so African-Americans are more likely to be affected by CVDs, even like in just America. Mm-hmm. And so like epidemiological research might look into, okay, like epidemiolo- epidemiological <laughs> research, are researchers are the people that would like come up with this trend, mm. even if it's just in like the US, right. if that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So this type of research is really good at identifying risk factors for different diseases and um, the and seeing if there's like a higher prevalence of this disease in specific populations and kind of like, okay, so what things could indicate that this person is prone to, to this disease? Mm-hmm. Um, so a quick overview about clinical versus epidemiological. Mm -hmm. Um, Clinical research is focused on the individual. So how does this treatment affect this one singular patient, right? Um, Does this this treatment, um, does this treatment help the disease of this one patient? And then epidemiological is focused on the entire population. So it's like, okay, so does this, um, why, like, why is this population more likely to receive this disease than another population and things like that. But then clinical research will also like, even if it's like, when you say individual, you're technically referring to like the whole group. Cause like, obviously in each study, you're going to have to have like several patients being. Tested. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like um, clinical research is more focused on like, like what's going, like what's going on within your body. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's like, um, it's more like testing the effect of something like on a patient while like, epidemic epi- I'm gonna call it epi research because I'm not saying <laughs> epi research is more like like why does this like happen or like yeah to- yeah it makes sense I think it's really cool like how there's so many like different areas of research like, I didn't I didn't know it was that diverse because when I think research I honestly just think more of like basic or clinical research like I didn't really think of the epi side of research you know and I think yeah. like th- like based on like your um interest or like level of like wanting to like interact with like people versus just working in the laboratory like it just kind of increases as you go to the next level you know yeah no it's like it's like the medical field there's so many different like aspects to it like just being a physician there's so many different fields but then also with research there's like a, like a whole another like right different fields that you can go into yeah because I remember like I used to be like oh like do I want to like go completely into research or do I want to just become a doctor and like one thing I was always thinking is like oh like I want to become a doctor for sure I know that but like in that moment I my reason for like not really wanting to do research as much is because I don't want to be like solely in the laboratory but like now looking at it like you don't have to just be sitting in the laboratory doing research like you're like doing clinical trials or like your epi research like those like involve like with wait those those involve interacting <laughs> with like patients and other people a lot yeah so there's like it's like there's literally every like anything for an- anyone yeah yeah so now I'm going to talk about the process of getting your medical degree 
So obviously everyone has to go get their bachelor's degree. Um, and apparently it's best to get degrees in biology, chemistry, or biochemistry if you want to get into medical research. But honestly, you could probably, you, like, you could genuinely get, like, um, any degree and still, like, work in medical research. Um, and then after, it's not a requirement, but it's suggested that you go to med school and get an MD or DO. And it doesn't really matter which one. And this kind of gives, like, um, I think this is, like, specifically if you want um, to be a medical researcher, but like it kind of gives you an idea of what the human body is like and it helps you a lot when you're in the clinic and you're trying to like um, figure out different, like different like experiments that you can run, you know? Um, and then after this is also not a requirement, but um, you can go back to graduate school and earn a PhD in medical research. And if you wanted to, um, you could go and earn your PhD first and then go get your MD or get your MD first and then get your PhD. It doesn't really matter what order you do that in. Um, but if you are, oh, also a PhD and an MD, neither of them are, are required, but it's highly recommended for medical researchers to have both of them. And I, think, I think for some fields, like, or some research, like, MD is pretty much required. Like, if you're working in a heavily, like, clinical trial, like, there's no way they're going to, like, let you in if you have no medical research. Because, like, I think the field of research is so broad. Like, we can literally get a research job when we become undergraduates because that's how much, like, variety there is in, like, positions. But if you want, if you, if you want to, like, um, work, like, higher end research then it you probably should get those things like don't just expect to go to undergrad and like suddenly be popular like that's not gonna happen <laughs> so after your undergrad if you know you want to go into medical research and you know you want to get your um a medical degree and a phd there are programs that allow you to get both at once um so it's kind of like bsmd programs as like that you can get as high schoolers which for the people that don't know it's where if you know you want to be a doctor you know you want to earn your medical degree after or like right when you're applying to schools during um during high school you can apply to programs where you're directly admitted into medical school so you don't have to worry about that after your undergrad so like similarly um after your undergrad if you know you want to get your PhD and your medical degree there you can apply to programs that kind of combine both so it gives you direct admissions to get your medical degree and your PhD at the same time um it doesn't like reduce the time you still have to do seven years like you still have to do four years of your medical degree and then three years of PhD it just like streamlines the process for you so you don't have to worry about applying to the schools twice and get like applying to a medical degree school and then also going to to get your PhD and that's so convenient because guys like we're literally just going through a college application process right now and like it I know. And then, like, think about it. You have to do this, like, two, two more times. times. That's great. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> and then, finally, all medical researchers and physicians, well, not all of them. I think, like, most of them, you need to pass an exam called the United States Medical Learning Examination. So even if you want to be a physician, you still need to pass this exam. And it's basically a three-step examination. Oh, I've, I've, like, seen that. Abbreviate. Yeah, I've heard it's like really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but basically it's like a three-step examination and um it basically assesses a physician and researcher's readiness to just be going out there and practicing medicine on your own so up until then you're like practicing it under the supervision of a doctor and stuff but this test kind of determines if you're ready to go on your own and do it uh, and then from there, you can start looking for labs. Well, okay, before this, you're still supposed to be looking, working in labs throughout the entire process. But from there, you, you just have like more opportunities to work on your own. You know, you don't have to work under anybody. You can now like work with people. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you, how, how can like high schoolers get clinical research right now? Um, so as I am doing my college research right now, um, we have to write a lot of these like why school essays and like doing this, doing research for the schools, it's very clear that almost every single college, they encourage students to conduct research in their interests. So whether it's like through programs that help you find a mentor to con- to conduct independent research or programs that match you with professors that are doing ongoing projects that you can work with. Um, they really do encourage you to explore um, the research aspect of your interests. Um, so you'll have plenty of opportunities to explore if research is something that really interests you in college, if you're worried about like, oh, I don't know if research is something that I like or if, um, if I want to be a physician, right? But um, if you want to start looking for opportunities now and you don't want to wait up until your undergrad, like your undergrad experience, um, you can, there are a lot of ways that you can start like getting some medical research experience. Um, so a lot of schools, at least in Loudoun County, they offer these classes called ISR, which is independent science research. So if your school offers it, it's a great way to kind of get involved in independent research as a high schooler. And um, and it gives you access to like competitions like RCEF at the end, where you can go and like see how, how professor, professional, professional (laughs) professional researchers kind of present their research in like these little conferences and stuff like that um other than that if your school doesn't offer these classes you don't have to worry because there are other ways that you can get these research opportunities the I think that one of the easiest ways to do it is to cold email research professors at labs and universities near you so a lot of researchers are busy and so even if you email them they might not reply back to you but if you send out a ton of emails like I'm talking about like hundreds like hundreds to like like just a ton of emails um <laughs> like uh, you at, might at least, also like, end up on the block list guys take this advice with caution <laughs> <laughs> but like okay not 100 emails to the same person oh <laughs> don't be psycho (laughs) no but like a hundred emails to different labs um at least one one lab will reply back at least because also guys like researchers want like free hands to help them like they literally like want students that will help them so there's definitely one for you yeah someone will reply back yeah but um and so a great place to start looking for universities to to um, email is by looking at universities that are nearby and looking at the labs that they have at these universities. And so then as you're like, cause these universities will have like a, 
a, a whole website with just all of the different labs that they have. And so as you're looking through the labs, um, find one that you think interests you and kind of works with what you like. And honestly, like with medical research, it's not just one medical research lab. They have so many different like types of labs. So if you're, if you want to go into cancer research, they'll have a lab for you. If you want to go into like, um, research with the nervous system, they'll have a lab for you. Um, and so like look for a lab that interests you and kind of does the research that you want. And then look at the past research papers that they've worked on. So after you've kind of, after you've identified like some the, some labs that you're interested in working in, then email the head of the lab expressing the interest that you have in exploring their research and exploring like medical research as a high schooler and why their lab specifically is re resonates with you. And it's really good if you can like describe a specific paper that really piques your interest. And then finally, ask them if you can meet over Zoom to discuss their research more and potentially discuss working under them. So it's not like you're overwhelming them by like, oh, like I want this position, but you're also like, you're showing them that you're interested in learning more, even if they're, Smart. even if they're not, yeah, <laughs> like not gonna offer you a position. Um, but if that doesn't work out, you can also look into applying to research programs in your area. But I've noticed that a lot of these are very selective, so it might be a little hard to get into. Um, I know in Loudoun County, there's something called ASUP, and that it's a program which pairs you with a George Mason researcher, but it's very selective. Um, is what I've heard. And then also there's something called Janelia, but that's mostly for CS. Um, but if you kind of want to see work on ML projects that discover more about like medicine and, and health, then that might be a, a good option for you. Mm -hmm. and, and so finally, I'm going to talk about where you can showcase your research. It's good to get medical research, but it's better to kind of show it to the public and use it to actually help others because that's the whole point of research, right? It's to discover more about like, the human body and share it with the world so that other people can use it in the future maybe. So ways that you can share your research with others is through conferences. And I kind of talked about this a little bit before when I was talking about ISR, but there's something called RCEF, which is Regional Science and Engineering Fair. And there's something else called Junior Science and Humanities Symposium, which is JSHS. And then finally, there's something called Symposium of Rising Scholars. And these are all high school conferences where you can go and present your research to judges and other researchers in the field. And it's not just like judges that are there. Um, so many other like just researchers in general they all attend these fairs and it's a great way for other researchers to kind of learn more about the research that you've been doing and kind of share it with others and then also maybe earn awards for it the other way that you can share your research is by publishing it in journals and there's so many high school journals that you can publish it to like i'm telling you there's like a ton of them out there and i'm gonna tell you guys like what you could do something called the journal of high school research too <laughs> And then there's something called Youth Medical Journal, Journal of Emerging Inve Investigators, and Journal of Student Research. And these are all great ways that high schoolers like us can go and publish our independent research. And it's like a peer-reviewed journal, but specifically for high schoolers so that other people can access it and learn more from your research. And then it's also an easier way for you to get your research published. Wait, um, also that website that you got yours published on this is more related to research of you just compiling information though because it was like on COVID or something 
Oh, okay, that one. There's something called PGHR. I don't know 100% what it stands for. I think it's like oh, public pre- pre-collegiate global health review. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like if you're really interested in something with global health and you want to you write a, an article about a, a current global health event, then you can compile all your information together and then do research from different articles and kind of write an article about it and publish it so that if this isn't like a a research journal it's not really research that you're publishing but you're publishing articles for public knowledge like spreading awareness okay thank you so much for like anyone interested in medical research i hope that gave you a little insight because that gave me a lot of insight i wish i knew that three years ago when i was deciding everyone just has this really narrow mindset of what research is there's just so much you can do in research and there's so many different paths you can go to take it i love how like flexible it is on how much education you have depending on how in-depth you want to go into it yeah okay during my Harvard interview we were talking about our podcast right yeah at the same time I know the purpose of our podcast is to educate other people but at the same time I learned so much from it yeah like (laughs) (laughs) we're educating ourselves while we're doing this (laughs) okay with that out of the way just another reminder make sure you follow us on Instagram and then also subscribe to our podcast on all platforms Medics, medics off, off the mic. The mic.